My Family Thinks I'm Crazy, a podcast where I, your host, try to give you some tips on how you can explain all this weird, wild, crazy conspiracy stuff to the people you love most, because that's what I've been trying to do for the past 10 years with no success. I've been telling everybody that I give them in a shady, but every time I do, my family thinks I'm crazy. champion is a healer, scientist, farmer, pagan, heathen, and alchemist. For years he's honed his knowledge of plants in the natural world, and today he returns for his third appearance on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast to discuss how he's integrated cannabis and George Wiseman's Aquacure into his daily life to overcome chronic pain and more. Benjamin Balderson joins me, Mystic Mark, here on the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. Thank you for tuning in and enjoy this conversation with Benjamin Balderson. The thing is, is we didn't start seeing so many of these weird diseases until we started being commercialized with everything. Um, you don't get like, uh, even with humans, when we all are in tiny little areas cooped up, you see weird diseases crop up. You see weird mental illnesses crop up where you get out, out in the, where the people are spread out. You don't see the same things like uh, salmonella on chickens that never is coming out of somebody's backyard chickens. That that's never the case. It's when you coop up, you know, 10,000 birds in one small area and there's a giant mixture of all these different feces and urine and everything's eating in and out of it and everything's exchanging. That's too much. And, and diseases crop up out of that. Matt Powers talks about E. coli with weed don't realize there's more different strains of E. coli than there are humans on the earth. And only a couple of them actually are harmful. And one of the things that people are really going to have a hard time understanding is this is where terrain theory does come in, is that depending on the terrain of your body, as that information is coming in, your body actually symbiotically programs the information.
All right, we're recording. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast. We got a returning legend, uh, the man Benjamin Balderson, behind Odin's Alchemy. You know him and love him. He's got all kinds of crazy stuff going on over at his farm slash laboratory. If you're a... uh, a homesteader, you ought to go over there and check it out. If you're an alchemist, you ought to go and check it out. And if you're just curious about this kind of arcane knowledge that's been stamped out of history by the various empires, I think Ben is a great guy to call on. So uh, without further ado, Benjamin Balderson, welcome to the show. Welcome back. I hope people are familiar with you. How you been? Hey, Mark. It's been been a wild year. Mm. Um, just absolutely wild, uh, a hard year, but uh, for, in a lot of parts, but then amazing. Like I, I spoke at Flattoberfest. That's absolutely amazing. We're doing Flattoberfest uh, again next year. We're doing it over on the West Coast. Um, so it just, it, it, just wild. I've met so many, got to meet so many people. Um, I went up to Oregon and uh, performed a wedding for Rachel and Jim. Um, that was absolutely amazing. Uh, during the, during the full moon eclipse, uh, you know, just like, so it's just been a wild year, bro. Cool. Wow. That's beautiful. Yeah. That's, uh, that's that flat Toberfest is quite a, uh, amalgamation of people of all different types. Any wild, uh, <laughs> you witness anything wild at the flat Toberfest? Um, <laughs> it, it was, it was crazy. Um, the only one that got, uh, you know, there was the tractors, you know, that tried to come in. And, uh, I guess, uh, some of the guys went out and did some, uh, uh, I don't know if you'd call it protesting or what, what, uh, activism, I guess. Huh. And, uh, cops got called on them and they had to do a whole first amendment amendment thing with the cops and bust out a piece of paper showing, Hey, we're allowed to do this. We're allowed to be in public areas talking. We're allowed to talk loud enough for people to hear us. Like, you know, um, so this whole thing went down. And then at the, the at the uh, Flattoberfest, oh, there were so many people. Uh, it, it was wild. And then, yeah, free, uh, Freeman Fly came and he didn't have a pass. And so uh, Karen's boyfriend, you know, he was kind of in the zone and he didn't look at Freeman fly and register Freeman fly. He looked at his chest and saw he had no pass. He's like, no pass. You're out of here. And so he kicks Freeman fly out of the convention and uh, Freeman, he, instead of getting mad, just takes it as a, he goes, he stays outside the whole time and uh, just walks around like photobombing people just like with his little free his Freeman TV stickers and things like that. Just walking up over people's shoulders and going like, <laughs> it was hilarious. Uh, he got media bear pretty good. Uh, media bear had no idea who he was and he was behind him the whole time. That, that was pretty, that was pretty just hilarious. And uh, I got him. I got media bear the next day. He asked me, I, I don't know what he was doing. He asked me if I knew what an N, uh, NFT was. And I just looked at him and said, I'm not gay. And walked away. And he's like, I, uh. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah, this is it's a, quite the melting pot, uh, Flattoberfest. I, I know you're sort of an esteemed guest there. How did your presentation go? Oh, it, it was 
absolutely epic. This is my first time I've been in front of a giant crowd. Uh, I've been at things with like 20, 30 people and whatnot. Um, but this, you walk into it, it's a huge auditorium. You know, you get up on the stage, the lights are actually in your face, you know, just screaming on you. Uh, you understand what the, the, some of the, I've heard speakers talk about how hot it was up there. You're like, yes, cause lights are just screaming. Wow. But uh, get, with my first presentation, I the presentation itself went fantastic. Um, it's uh, components I've been working on were really well received. The main part of it was uh, that I have been working on trying to tie the uh, wandering stars because as above, so below, everything's supposed to work the same. And I've been trying to work out how the wandering stars worked. Uh, and because uh, we have so much preconceived information, uh, it, it was hard to wade through all of that to try and get to it. But once I figured it out, it, it's wide open. Like it's like all the, all the information really actually is there. It's our preconceived notions of that information. That's the problem. Um, so it was just absolutely fantastic. But I also learned uh, what I need to do more for the next one, especially watching some of the other presentations and whatnot. Uh, Marty Leeds presentation was cool as hell. One thing he did that I liked, he went and just sat down and got underneath the lights. I was like, that's smart. <laughs> yeah, no, he's done this before. Um, I, but, uh, everybody's was just fantastic. The, the, um, got along with all the speakers. The speakers were really cool. Um, Witsits was interesting. Uh, the, the, the very Christian right-wing Christian group that, that was hilarious. Cause I walked into their area kind of on accident. Cause I was walking along looking at the stuff. And as I was just looking at it, I, you know, just got to their area and hadn't even realized that there was that area or whatever. And all of a sudden I'm in a super right-wing Christian. And I look down at this thing. I'm like, wow, that's very right-wing Christian. Wow. And I look up and the lady's like, hi. And I'm like, oh, oh, <laughs> oh, these are your people. I see. Right. I, I will go. <laughs> right. Well, and that is interesting to point out. Like there are sort of subsects of even this subculture. Right. And I wonder, you know, yeah. considering I haven't ever been to Flattoberfest or really any festival quite like that, uh, how is this sort of uh, tribal, uh, you know, relationships, right? Because people tend to group up in tribes, you know, no matter what yeah. event it is. But, you know, Flattoberfest, you might have some pretty interesting tribes that form. Yeah, there there definitely is. There's, uh, you know, the uh, more Christianized, we're here because the Bible says that the firmament and the earth is mm -hmm. flat and unmoved and stationary. And they're, they're just hardcore Christians. Like they aren't open to any of the other things that, you know, a lot of us might delve into or talk about. And I'm the occult devil. I am de not the devil, but I am the antichrist. Usually is what's the one that they throw at me for whatever reason. <laughs> um, but then after that, uh, like myself, I'm not necessarily what you would call flat earth. Because to me, the 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 earth isn't shaped like this. You know, it's not shaped like that. 
uh, that's that's ridiculous. It's it's uh, we live based in the center, and there's a dome above and a dome below. We live in the cosmic egg, and we live in the center of it, and that's relatively flat. Um, so I don't think we li- So I have my own thing, but mine's very biochemical, electrical. So you'd kind of put me in like the electrical uh, camp, I guess. And then you know Marty's kind of does his own thing. He's not really with the right wing right wing Christians. He's but he's still you know Bible based and and cosmology based. He does tie other cosmologies to it. Uh, Witsit's doing the. Uh, it seems pretty much like he's following Ken Wheeler and then crossing that with the Bible. He's he's actually very very Christian also. Um, and then obviously Dave has his own just Dave crowd, you know, Dave Weiss, you know, he's huge. That guy's a legend. Um, and as does Mark Sargent, uh, both of them, both them guys are just huge. Uh, so they have their own, just their people, uh, which it was hilarious because then there was like a whole Dave and Mark Sargent were, uh, you know, just, you know, joshing around with each other. And, you know, so then like during like Q and a, like, one of them gets up, you know, and, hey, is it true that Mark Sargent is Dave's Weiss, Dave Weiss's illegitimate father, you know, and, you know, doing some, you know, crap like that, you know, oh, it's just man. hilarious. Um, <laughs> well, I definitely, so, yeah, I, I definitely haven't been a part of, of this directly in person. I would love an opportunity to go there, uh, although I, I don't subscribe to that flat view either uh but that is cool to to hear that you know there's some open-mindedness within that community and i think you know it's an entirely american thing when we really look at history uh that we would have groups like this forming whether they believe in the flat earth or, or what have you uh we have the you know both sides of the spectrum the negative manifestations of it in the form of cults, right? And then we have the positive manifestations of this in the form of maybe like uh, community groups and uh, even conspiracy-oriented groups where people are looking into how to become self-sufficient and and avoid uh, being oppressed, right? These are all, in my opinion, beneficial. But when we have a government that suppresses anything that isn't uh, warranted by them, well, you know, you sort of have a, a melting or uh, the sort of petri dish these things are bubbling up it's just like they 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 know it's gonna happen so to speak so i guess where i want to blend this into is maybe with the overlap with the drug culture and and how that's sort of become mainstream much like conspiracy has to a smaller degree right i mean people who 10 years ago would have shamed me and shunned me for smoking weed are now you know politely engaging in a few tokes at a party right like now they're they're warming up to it they're drinking cbd seltzers and all this other crap so uh it's funny how things have flipped but that underground cannabis culture it's still there and i think it kind of uh has been a hotbed for a lot of these same conspiracy ideas because there's something about the plant that wants you to look deeper, wants you to open up, right? I mean, you can, of course, overuse it or go too far, maybe go down the wrong path, but I think for the most part, cannabis is an enlightening plant. I know you would probably agree. So to see it become legalized and almost like hoard out 
through this commercialism, it's 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 indicative of you know where we're going, and I wonder if conspiracies might get hoard out the same way. You know, I don't know. Uh, what are your thoughts on that, Ben? Oh wow, it, it, it's such a interesting interesting subject. So obviously, uh, one of my deals is is I, I do I do consume cannabis, and I have for twenty uh, some years. Um, it, because I have grandma seizures and before I started consuming cannabis, cause actually I was in the army when I was, when I was very young, no, don't walk on my keyboard. Um, when I was very young, I, then I developed uh Wilson's disease, which was, you know, it, I didn't, it's not something you can catch. It's a, a genetic thing. And it was just sitting latent inside my system and hadn't, you know, shown itself yet. Um, well, what that makes it, what that happens is I can't process copper the way other people do. And so if I get too much copper in my system, it'll all uh, go to my brain. And actually, the way I ended up getting diagnosed was at the eye doctor because the copper will build up around the pupil of your eye and look like this brown star. And, uh, the, your eye isn't, my eyes are green and I'll get this brown around the center and everybody look, it looks like I have two tone eyes, but it's actually copper in my, that's showing in my eyes that, uh, uh, because my body doesn't process it like other people. Um, well, if that gets too big, I will have, and I'll, I'll start, my wife says I smell like a wet penny and I will fall down and I'll just start having seizures. Well, cannabis, uh, since I've started, uh, using cannabis extracts. Um, I haven't had a seizure. Well, I did once cause I, Christy's son's acute, her ex-husband accused me of being an addict and you know, that's why he never gets high because he's such an addict and blah, blah. And I was like, no, I don't, I, I use as much as I need to not have seizures. So I didn't for a day and a half and I fell down and had a seizure. But outside of that one, that's the only seizure I've had in six years now. Um, so I've been very heavily involved in the industry now, and I've actually been to prison for cannabis, uh, a lot of people. And I've, and I've talked about that. It was more, uh, it was earlier on. So I think a lot of people didn't don't necessarily notice or didn't realize it. Cause they, you know, if you've only started listening to me in the last year, you know, or, you know, two years or whatever, but, uh, I got, I'm from South Dakota and in South Dakota, they're crazy about it. I got, uh, I got, I moved, I moved from uh, Colorado to South Dakota, and I got caught with a quarter pound of weed one week, and I got paid every two weeks. So I'd buy two ounces a week, or four ounces a week. So I smoked about two ounces a week, and I, so I went and got a, a quarter pound because I got it was my payday, and I got busted. And they acted like I was Pablo Escobar, you know, and they're like, they gave me a possession with intent to distribute. I'm like, I wasn't going to distribute that. I was going to smoke it. You're nuts, (laughs) you know, but uh, because of that, there's so many things that the world doesn't realize that that industry has driven Um, because uh, the people that used cannabis, um, they weren't using it in a fashion like hard drugs where like cocaine, you know, you just start smoke or snorting cocaine until, until your face damn near falls off and you just can't get enough of it. Um, 
where you're you're really likely to heavily abuse it. Most your cannabis growers, especially back then, um, if you weren't getting Mexican brickweed, which there was two things, Mexican brickweed or or mostly stuff that was grown in somebody's basement, unless you lived where I live now, which is the Emerald Triangle, and you got Emerald Triangle weed. Uh, that was your options. Well, the the stuff in somebody's basement, some guy is down there, and he is studying plants like nobody you've ever imagined. And uh, entirely indoor lighting and the understanding of the color spectrums that plants require, that's entirely driven by the cannabis industry, entirely driven. Um, because they needed to try and mimic the closest spectrums. And, you know, it started out with you were doing things like understanding that a metal halide puts out a blue light and a blue light create is a vegetative light. So when your plants going through its vegetative growth cycle, you, uh, use blue light in order to vegetate. Well, then when it goes into its, uh, uh, fruiting cycle which is your fall the sun takes on an orange hue and the fall then it's a different spectrum and so you switch over to a high pressure sodium which gives off more of an orange hue and you got a better budding effect out of it than you did if you tried to stick with a metal halide the the whole time well then they kept pushing it and pushing it well then you start figuring out you know, they start figuring out as they push it even further where in the spring and in the morning, the sun has an orangish hue. That's not quite like the evening orangish hue. And then, uh, uh, in the afternoon, there's a distinct white bluish hue. And then in the evening, you switch back to that orangish hue and also in the fall. So different, Things are happening inside of the plant, which gives it a fullness and that you need to provide all of those things, which is why uh, outdoor growing, even though it doesn't have the pristine look and a lot of times the, the terpene profile that the indoor or that the indoor does, you find that the uh, effects of it are, are vastly strong, so much stronger if it was decently done. Um, and it's because there is more of a fullness. I also have a suspicion that not replicating what the moon does is part of the, also the issue with indoor, not, uh, coming to the fruition that it should. Um, because at night, like when I set up my solar panels, my solar panels, they pull in, uh, voltage at night. There isn't an amperage until the sun comes but at night, it's even like on a full moon, there'll be 60 volts. My system will just be screaming with voltage. And yeah, enough to actually ignite my, because my uh, inverter's 48 volt, and my inverter will actually ignite and turn on like it's daytime. And I'm like, what? Um, and it, there's not really any power to invert, but the pathway is open to do it. So, uh, and, and there's another industry that was entirely driven by the cannabis industry as the solar industry because there's not really at the time there wasn't in anybody's opinion money to be made people don't realize that a lot of times um the government's super famous for this let somebody else lay their tracks and then they take it and run their trains down it you know um 
So they got to wait to see if it's a viable system. Well, these cannabis growers who had an abundance of cash that they were not able to put into traditional systems where they couldn't go deposit in the bank. They're not going to, they can't go buy stocks and deal with the traditional systems. What they did do was uh, uh, pay startups and drive all these startups, which is where the, the uh, solar industry started coming up at. So it's understandings of lighting, uh, understandings of uh, the way that affects the plant, and then the nutri- nutrient understanding, the, the uh, movement that's starting to catch on for uh, uh, actual uh, regenerative, regenerative farming that was also driven by the cannabis industry where again, these people in the basement, they aren't just trying to find the perfect scientific conditions because that's the difference there. There's all kinds of scientists that want to perfect something, but these people they're in love with their plants. They are absolutely in love with their plants. They're down there talking to them. I used to grow, you know, back when I, when it was illegal and it was hard to get a supply Growing was absolutely a viable thing that you did in your basement. You studied this and you went down there and, oh, this plant, you know, this thing is going to be so amazing. This is sour diesel. This is my favorite strain. Oh, and look at you. You're getting so gooey and drippy. And you're down there just, you are literally in love with these plants. Um, So there's an energy that's exchanged between you and them that you would never do on a commercial there's a commercial grow right up the hill from me right here. And they hire a couple of, uh, a couple of brown skin people. I'm not sure if they're Mexican or Guatemalan or, you know, what they are brown skin people. That's all, you know, they hire a couple brown people and they, they leave them living in really bad conditions. They even got, you see them having tents out there and stuff. This guy's, you know, making uh, mad amounts of money cause he's doing it legally. It's the humble cure. So he's one of the bigger, uh, well-known uh, brands in Humble, And, you know, he's got a couple guys hanging out in tents, taking care of all of his plants. It's pretty disgusting. Uh, but then the other thing that happens is because they're letting the, these people grow the way, like I was talking about earlier, the Mexican brickweed, which was grown commercially, nobody cares about that plant. That, that plant was grown for money. It was, it was grown strictly as a cash crop. And so they go out there and the same as like the Cambodians around here and things like that, they'll go out and they'll, they'll grow very large crops. And then they go out and they buy things like, uh, uh, grow more, which is like miracle grow on steroids. It looks like it's fucking nuclear. It's like this super, super bright turquoise-ish color that almost glows and you're like what is that and it does it makes the plants look great they're big they're frosty but then you go and try and consume it and you're like what's what's going on here was this was this cbd what was this and it, it and so none of the punches is there to go along with it um well that was on the commercial end where they're again they're just trying to make as much money as possible. So they don't care. They throw whatever uh, uh, chemical concoction that they can 
at the plants. And this is this on a on a basic level, this has been commercial farming for the last uh, 80 years where we're just going in, we tear the biome up, we take and we throw the nutrients that macro, but mostly just macro and commercial farming with some little bit of care given to micronutrients. Um, and then they put that nutrient in a very raw crystallized form typically into the soil, which then because this is so isolated, these components are meant to work symbiotically with things. And so when they hit the soil, and this is one of the things why there's a heavy push against nitrogen right now, it's because it's isolated crystallized nitrogen or liquid nitrogen that they're putting that's heavily isolated. So when that hits the, the live biome, this super unstable stuff needs to stabilize. And it just starts saying, gimme, 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 and rips everything else apart around it until it stabilizes, which is a, a very basic chemistry thing. This is what this is what molecules do. Uh, if they're unstable, they find a way to be stable. They snatch onto whatever will fit in that hole and they grab it. And that that's just very basic stuff. Um, well, when you instead go with a live biome and what they're finding, and this is again, entirely driven by the cannabis industry, cause nobody gives a flying fuck that your sweet potato has an extra flavor profile. Now that it's been grown in a live biome, like, huh, this sweet potato has a slight flavor. I've never tasted. No, it gives a shit, but with your cannabis in somebody's basement, that guy cares that this plant all of a sudden has not just limonene in it, but, you know, like three other terpenes that are noticeable in this profile. Wow. And and, and things like that. Now this has like a, a, a not just an uppy high, but an almost psychedelic, you know, little brush to it like you know they're all about critiquing this and so what they're finding then and is that when you started doing a live biome with uh regenerative farming that as this live soil uh continued every year and you kept it going that it became much more rich and and, and much more complex and now that we're finding through Matt Powers, um, who I believe did I send did I send you his stuff, Mark? Matt, please Powers? do uh, please do again. It might have gotten lost in the mail. Yeah, please. Yeah, um, he uh, he's an actual microbiologist that gets to look through all these, has access to these amazing microscopes and whatnot. But he's not in the normal science mind so he's what he calls a citizen science so he is actually and has his own courses and he works with like so uh elaine ingram who's probably the top soil biologist in the world and people like that and they're actually sitting there doing the actual work and sharing it amongst each other so they can get a more full understanding of what's happening here because they're noticing that um there's features and 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 organisms in the soil now after after you've let it become a live biome for long enough 
that never existed before that are now inside the soil. And it's because the conditions were never right for these creatures to be there. And that's another thing people don't realize at all, that the conditions that the world is in, things don't just disappear. They just disappear for now. And when the conditions are correct for that thing to come back, the DNA is still here. That will come back. This is how you see things like uh, Arizona, where they're having uh, record uh, uh, moisture. And it's been a desert in basic in recorded history. And now that they're getting this record moisture, animal life and uh, plant life and things are appearing that didn't migrate there. It didn't move there because it just appeared there. And they're finding that in, in its complex life even. And it's because the conditions have become favorable for that life again. It got its water and boom, life appears. How recently How recently has that been uh, noticed? Because we, re- we had a conversation with Peter Shampoo on this podcast and he's quite a character. I really have a lot of faith in him. He's, you know triple my age and very brilliant. And he claimed that one of his goals out there in Arizona, he lives in Arizona, uh, was to help water the West again. And he has this sort of, you know, ley line science and the sacred uh, circle alignments that, you know, map out the, the globe. He kind of, you know, has his own geography. That's what he calls it. And um, I don't know exactly the specifics, but it, it seems to involve uh, meditation, intention, very similar to uh, things like weather shamanism, right? Where you have somebody who uh, fills that, um, I don't know, you probably can really help me elucidate this uh, analogy, but you have like the, you know, atmosphere and then something comes into the atmosphere and brings that positive charge or negative charge that then creates whatever conditions bring rain right and i think there's a science to that you know it's been mystified because shamanism hasn't been respected by academia but i think there is a real truth that i was just talking to howdy mikowski our conversation fortuitously mysteriously was deleted i recorded it and my power my power went out right at the end of our conversation deleting the file so i'll have to do a redo but during that conversation he told a story about a shaman who was called to a, ve- a very, you know, dry area, a place that had experienced drought for a long time. And afterwards, they had asked the shaman, you know, how did you make it rain? Because he was successful at making it rain. And he said, well, you know, when you pray for rain, that's saying that there's no rain there. All I did was I went there and I thought rain, you know, and that sort of simplicity to that, you know, it's that's part of the inversion that our culture does to us to see the outside, you know, rather than what's inside first, right? We kind of externalize everything. Whereas it's, it's as simple as we humans can be the battery for this type of electrical exchange in the right circumstances. It's, it's not mystical. There's a, there's an, environmental explanation for it and i don't know if peter shampoo is the cause of you know arizona experiencing record moisture but uh it certainly would be cool to to find that out oh yeah we need to get him together with mitch the oregon the oregon donor he's also over there in arizona and he's doing the uh 
Oregon, which which is a very similar thing, I, I would say, to what Peter's talking about. Because in these uh, uh, desert areas, you have highly ionized skies. Mm. It's got a, uh, an extremely uh, uh, hard plus charge on it. And you even see that when you go hang out in these areas where they, they will get uh, static lightning storms. And the, the lightning won't come to the ground. Um, and so you almost end up having the same problem with uh with those areas that you have with like a sponge that's been sitting in not one you pull out of the package new where it's got like a moistness to it but one that's been sitting there like under the counter and you pick it up and that thing's like a, that thing's like hard like rock and when you put that sponge in water even though you know a sponge is kind of pulling water it doesn't it takes that thing a few minutes at first it's it's uh hydro it's hydrophilic it just wants to push that away it's scared of it and uh, i think this happens in these highly ionized area where it's so dry it doesn't want to have that water like pushes it away because it's there well what we're talking about when you go and sit and meditate especially when he's uh into the ley lines which is just wonderful um, what with ley lines, what we're talking about is the crystal grid, the, the salt grid, and that's underneath us. Cause we live in the middle plane in between the two things. And so when something's got too much ionization, too much heavy positive charge, which a lot of humans suffer from this. And this is part of why grounding becomes such a, uh, a heavy thing. What you're grounding into is that uh, crystal grid is what you're actually grounding into, not into this, into this level we live on, but it's the, the negative that you're, you're balancing out with. And so when he's going and finding these ley line points and uh, sitting over them and then doing that, he's, he's creating a heavy ground because he's, he's grabbing up and, and channeling that uh, ley line energy, that crystal energy, which then, because it uh, grounds out that heavy ionization, now that we have that uh, balance reset, the moisture comes back and things are where they need to be. Right. And then we can begin to see the, the living biome of the soil come back. And you mentioned earlier, you know, the funny sort of duplicity in people not really considering how our food could be much better, much more abundant, right? You joked about the sweet potato having like another flavor, but I think that's really, um, if we're going to talk about cannabis being this sort of heroic crusading like force that's helped us in all these other areas, like an interdisciplinary kind of uh, teacher, right? It's taught us how we're neglecting it. And in conjunction with it, the rest of our environment needs to change too. So imagine a world where our sweet potatoes and our bananas and all the other, you know, bountiful things that we can eat in nature. I mean, it's all over. There's so many different varieties. I mean, you go to another country and they have fruits and vegetables you've never heard of, right? So clearly we're missing out on something here in America. And it goes back to this, you know, time in history where we have these big petrochemical companies 
spilling all of this junk all over our agricultural lands, creating that dust bowl. And now you see, you know, that desertification in places like Kansas in some places, right? Because of those dust bowls. And they've probably learned to mitigate those disastrous effects since, but they haven't changed. They haven't learned from their uh, disasters. They, they've just kind of uh, made their, you know, uh, means to destroy us more precise and less noticeable. Hundred <laughs> percent. With one of the biggest uh, uh, award winners in that category being glyphosate, where glyphosate uh, they made it so you know. The, the way the way gl what glyphosate originally was was boiler cleaner and so it was used to remove the salts because in a boiler you get uh, mineral salts that will scale onto the side of the boiler and start uh, clogging it up and they get really super hardened because uh, you know this boiler is basically a distillation setup and these things just calcify on top of there. And uh, so to remove that, they use glyphosate. Well, then everywhere that glyphosate would touch a plant, that plant died. And so, uh, you know, then they just started making plants that wouldn't die under glyphosate and started dumping glyphosate on everything else. Mm. Well, the thing that they didn't stop and consider is, you know, they didn't realize, well, they didn't know everything about plants. So they had figured out uh, macronutrients and some micronutrients. And if we just replace those, we can go ahead and wipe everything out, basically wipe the slate clean. It's almost the same idea as a, when uh, hydroponics first came out, where if you just put these uh, crystallized macro and micronutrients in it, you'll produce a plant. And you do. You produce a plant. And it does not have the punch. It doesn't have the flavor. It doesn't have the taste, uh, the smell, none of that. Uh, so it's super interesting. It's like this very sterile plant that looks, that looks pristine. Looks are the only check mark that that, that that matches on. And so then when people started adding in, uh, you know, all these different micronutrients and hormones and enzymes and all these other things. Well, then the complexity started coming back to the plants because they, because these things started getting used and you started seeing a movement where uh, instead of like uh, they even had to redo uh, bubble blocks because bubble blocks, if you get like a normal bubble block, like uh, comes with the uh, aqua cure. Well, that when organic uh, particles get into it will actually clog the holes. So there's an organic material bubble block that's got like a smooth outside instead of that kind of gritty outside. And so the holes don't get blocked up by organic material because all these people were, you know, put, growing in bubble buckets with organic uh, compounds uh, trying to grow their, their cannabis. And, uh, So the entire industry with everything started changing. Well, like you just said, when you started noticing that the terpene profiles started increasing in cannabis, well, then the terpene profiles in food also increases. And not only that, but if you're not taking in, you know, because like I live out in the mountains, it's very interesting. And our air here is so much better 
because there's no commercial farming around us. And our soil, because of that, it still has all those original nutrients in it, besides the ones that we naturally recognized. And so when you sit and promote that, all of a sudden the, the nutrient density of your food becomes different. And one of the ways that uh, <clears throat> a person can easily see this kind of thing is, is people that feed their dog something like Pedigree or Old Roy that has no nutrient density in it whatsoever, they have big fat dogs. And those dogs overeat. Those dogs are usually food aggressive. Like they've got to eat a ton of food. I've got, I've got uh, half a dozen pit bulls here. And they all look like they lift weights. They are lean and mean, and they literally have access to food 24 hours a day. Like there's a 50 get, I just there's a big bin, and I just pour a 50 get pound bag in the back of it, and they help themselves whenever they want. And they don't overeat. They don't eat near as much as a dog that's on pedigree or O'Roy eats. And because your body, while we've made a huge deal about caloric intake. Caloric intake is really one of the last factors you should be looking at. Um, calories is just your raw sugar. It's just your uh, uh, energy portion of the food. And that's going to come if you are eating a food that has nutrient density. It's going to have caloric intake to it. So the first factor you should be looking at is how much nutrients, which is your mineral salts are in the food and then how oily is the food because the oil is what's unlocking the salts these two things work in a symbiosis together and so then they call upon each other now that this has got this huge density of mineral salts in it it needs some heavy oil and that's going to be just amazing and juicy and flavorful and uh you aren't going to have to eat a huge quantity of it because your body is seeking so much of these nutrients. And once your body has it, you just don't even want it. Like there's a lot of times where you'll crave something really badly because your body's missing something. And then after your body's fulfilled that, it's like, nah, I'm done with that. But you might want something else. Um, There's nutrients your body understands and it expresses that through through your taste buds because when you're eating something that your body's missing, it is so delicious. Like you were years like, oh, I need this. This is amazing. Like my wife, she just uh, uh, probably, I don't know, six months ago or something, uh, started eating meat again because she, uh, I'm still a vegetarian and she had been a vegetarian for years and years. Um, but uh, she started experiencing her hair started falling out and it was really thin uh, she started, her teeth started falling apart. She had really thin nails. Uh, she was weak and had a lot of uh, inflammation and nerve pain. And so she started eating meat and we're kind of looking at the blood type diet with that. And she's an O and I'm an A and A's are, are natural vegetarians. It doesn't bother them at all. Where O's need that red meat. Well, when she would started eating that red meat, I mean, it was, she was voracious about it. She was ridiculous. Like, you know, like something out of like a horror movie, like ah, dead thing. Ah, ah, ah. Like you're like, wow. Oh, man. And, and, and it's, I was there too uh, about like, a year and a half ago. I went from being predominantly vegetarian to eating meat again. And 
Yeah, there was a few months where I really only ate meat for a meal. I mean, it's still pretty much only meat, and maybe that has to do with my blood type. I haven't uh, gone and got that checked out. And it's interesting you point out from your position, knowing what you know about alchemy, the oil and the salt, my conspiratorial mind gets me thinking that maybe the powers that be that put glyphosate everywhere and other, you know, structured our diet the way it is. Maybe they had some sort of alchemical knowledge and they knew that they were sort of leading us down the wrong path in some way. I mean, the the negative health effects are evident, right? We could see the health crisis in this country and how they're trying to mitigate it with zombifying drugs. Yeah. Uh, and then that's yeah. kind of where we're heading with the cannabis conversation is like now that cannabis is in the hands of MIT and who knows el who else, you know, yeah. we're, are we looking at a future where cannabis is causing that zombification? Cause if so, you know, I might need to try salvia or something. <laughs> so, so I will, I will walk you down the heavy part of that conspiracy of that. When you look Information is a lot of people think that information is in water, but it's not. Um, information is not in the water. The water's the mercury in the situation. It, it, it's not the water's information. It's something else, and the water picked it up and passes it on. Now, where does it pass it on to? It passes it on into water soluble minerals or salts the things that it's dissolving into it. And then when the water leaves, that information is still in that salt. A lot of people think water has memory because they, they briefly glanced at uh, Emoto's work. Well, if you look at a brief glance of it and all you, and you never actually read and study his work. Yeah. He just crystallized water and it remembers things when you, when you show it pictures or words and things. Like, no, when, when he went out originally and gathered water from different areas and started just crystallizing them and seeing that when he, when he transitioned from doing that to implanting images or words or music, you know, sounds into water, he distilled the water first. And he was specific about that in distilled water makes a, 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 a six-sided shape typically and so then from there now that it's this distilled set zero point now he gets to see scientifically what input he's having that creates a differential between this and so he had to distill out the salts which was in his words the memory of the water and then the water when he's putting that input in it and flash freezing it, now that input's still there. So it's the same idea as if I yell at water, and we've all done that and saw the water catch the sound vibration, and then it creates ripples. Well, if we froze it right then and there, flash froze it, that vibration would still be there. That's what he is doing is freezing the vibration while it's still in motion. It hasn't been stored in the water. It's only stored there because he froze it. Now, with glyphosate, what they've done is they have killed the memory of the land. And so in the memory of the land sits in these salts. 
And that's why when water hits and all of a sudden all these life, all this life appears and all these animals appear, there's an epigenetic memory. That's what epigenetic memory is, is salt memory in the land. And all these creatures have it. They all already know how to live. This creature didn't even exist here last week. And here it is doing its thing. Like it knows what's going on. And so there's an epigenetic salt memory that they are wiping out of the land. And then what they're putting back in. Now, just like with what Emoto did, what they're putting back in is what they want. And so they're overwriting and rewriting the memories of people, of the land, of everything, and putting in it. And it's literally no different than like when I'm doing my, uh, when I'm doing stop. Why always when I'm on a show? Um, cats. I, <laughs> they love attention. <laughs> when I'm right, right. When I'm doing, uh, like right now, I'm making gut bomb and. Somewhere on like the kettle that I'm making it in or something, I will put uh, my room or like if I'm doing like cannabis, like we've been talking about, I will put a little wunjo on there and I will put my rune and it's setting my intention. You know, here's here's me. This is my domain. This is my will. Well, I want this product to bring joy. I want it to bring whatever. And so I put that in there. And then as I'm making this product and as this product's uh, coming together and coagulating, that vibration is literally embedding into it. And, you know, this is why, uh, you know, grandma's food tasted better and you can throw the exact same ingredients together at a commercial kitchen and punch them out and it doesn't taste the same as grandma's because her intention and her energy were helping in this whole process and she was putting that in there with love for her family that she was getting ready to feed and, and, and provide for. And so in that commercial kitchen, they're just trying to make a buck. They don't care. Um, so they've overwritten the entire memory of the land. They're killing off the salts and then they're rewriting it with their intentions, which all it takes is putting a symbol or an insignia or something inside the tank that you're making the the fertilizers with, which are replacing the natural salts that I would have fed my plants with. Like when you go out and compost, what's happening? The old plant is breaking down and the mineral salts that were inside of that plant are breaking free from the carbon body and then they enrich the soil. So this is mineral salts that have been living through the same plants over and over and over. Well, the now those salts, they wipe them out with their glyphosate and they put their salts in there and they put their intentions in there, their memories in there. Right. Yes, Kat. Wow. No, that's, that's, that's really important information for everybody to sit with and, and really ponder because we're looking at... Uh, a topic that has been very pervasive, the whole reset topic. And I think this is a example of a literal reset, right? Mm -hmm. The way you're describing them uh, taking the uh, sh stripping the memories from the landscape. I mean, it's really uh, unsettling to think about. Now, when it comes to water, there are places like Florida and other places that have tremendous amounts of water underground and whatnot. And 
I mean, people really take for granted the fact that we get water from our city, and I don't know how many people really question the integrity of their water uh, that's delivered to them through the government. I know you probably are in a different situation living in the mountains, but for people who are maybe homesteaders or just curious about their water, what would you say, alchemically speaking, about like using iron or copper or different metals in these pipes that are delivering our water? You know, is there something that's going on uh, as the water is coming into our home, restructuring it in a way that might be detrimental to our health? I, I don't think that the, I think copper pipes were very good and very interesting um, because copper uh, tends to want to grab hydrogen. And so uh, that to run copper and, and the way this is super interesting because in your heart, and this is part of my presentation from Plat Flattoberfest, and this is actually what kicked the whole thing off, was I was looking at the heart because it's not a pump. The idea that that's mechanically pumping your blood is retarded. Like the, the head pressure that would need it be needed at the heart to drive the, the hydraulics, you know, since all this is a hydraulic system and to drive the hydraulics, to get it, the miles of veins that, it, that one, you know, system will travel through. It would just be phenomenal. You'd be blowing your system apart. Everything inside you would have to be made out of like stainless steel or titanium or something. Um, yeah, so this obviously isn't driven by hydraulic pressure uh, the way that uh, or mechanical, you know, fashion, the way that they think. Um, well, then when you look, you've got your red blood and your blue blood. Well, red blood is your iron side blood. And alchemically, iron is Mars. So... The iron side blood, what's happening is, is the oxygen is drawing, or the iron is drawing in oxygen and pushing away hydrogen. It's pushing, and so um, when your muscles or your digestive system, whatever, is decarbolating things, which that's basically the entire process that you're putting food through after you eat it is you're just decarbolizing it, and, you know, and breaking away all the carbon molecules so you can try and get to the the uh, uh, then unstable uh, mineral mo uh, molecules, which were stabilizing themselves with carbon, but now you've broken the carbon out. Now it attaches to you instead. Um, so I'm sorry that that little. I got me. Where was I then? Oh, okay. So, uh, uh, you're that side's pulling oxygen into the bloodstream, and and then also when you're breathing and whatnot, it's pulling it into the bloodstream from your lungs so it can be distributed. Well, then the blue blood, the copper side, copper is pushing is uh, pushing the oxygen and grabbing hydrogen. So that's super interesting, and the two are very opposed. And then they're opposed in an entirely another way. The way the the way the world just is put together, so amazing because it's always system overlapping, system overlapping, system, and they all work together. So then the other thing you got is is uh, Venus is copper alchemically. So you've got uh, uh, iron, a ferromagnetic field, 
that's driven by iron. And then when it hits copper, which actually copper should be ferromagnetic, but it's not, it, 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 it should actually be magnetic, but it's not because what sets magnetism is having an extra electron and copper has two extra electrons. So it should, it's, but instead of being like extra magnetic, those two electrons pair off with each other and it makes this weird and it makes this weird field, which is part of, you know, giant field, which is part of why we use that in a generator where we run magnets around a copper coiling and, you know, this generates power. Well, this whole same system's happening right in your heart center. Um, so copper pipes is, is I don't think that that's necessarily, those weren't bad, but definitely what is bad is uh, water in order to be living. And that's the water you're supposed to be consuming is live water. Um, it, A, needs to oscillate. Living water oscillates back and forth. And this is one of the things that uh, Schauberger um, first noticed. And, you know, he was a very big observationalist. And one of the things he noticed was water doesn't move straight down a river. Water oscillates back and forth, back and forth, like a snake in the banks. And your heart, back and forth, positive to negative, positive to negative. So just like with your heart, if I took them oscillations away and forced it into a straight line, well, that's that's dead center. There's a reason they call it dead center. Like that's you're no longer alive anymore. And they are forcing that situation with our water. So the water that we're getting then is, is no longer alive. It's no longer structured. Um, when you, if you go out and you just drink water bubbling up out of the earth, like we have, it has an entirely different taste. Uh, your mouth immediately starts becoming hydrated it, uh, rather than where you have to sit and chug water and get it like through layers. Um, because I, there's already just a natural structuring to it that we break apart and we basically, uh, again, uh, zero the water out and make it imprintable. And then they throw in different chemicals like fluorides in a lot of waters. Um, I got into a, a debate the other night. There was a lot of people thought fluorides in all water systems, and it's absolutely not. Uh, so many people think that the federal government... Oh, that's what started it. She's like, the federal government passed a law that they could do anything they want to the water. I was like, show me that. <laughs> you know, I want to see where they passed that. Mm. I was like, the federal government doesn't control the water systems. That's municipalities. Right. And, you know, like, yeah, yeah. so when, when the fluoride thing came around, this is part of how uh, these the way these rich areas get away with not having things like fluoride in their water, whereas the poor areas have like extra fluoride it's because when they, when they do things, they make an offer. They're like, well, if you start treating your water in this manner, then you can be available for these government grants or these government funds. And so if you accept that, well, then you have to do the things that they say to your water to fit inside their program. You get some monies and, and now your water's poison. Well, the rich areas, they're like, nah, nah, we don't want your monies. We don't care. We have monies. Right. And, and the poor areas are like, well, we do whatever you want. Just give us some monies. <laughs> and so, you know, um, so these areas that are more poor are typically the ones that have like the heavier fluoride 
and things, but that's absolutely not a universal thing. There's so many, like when that uh, whole stupid uh, snake venom in the water thing came out, like, do you, it's like, do you guys have any idea how many different water sources are in this country? Like every little, every little rural city has its own water source, every Creek, every river, every, you know, late, all of it. It's like, wow. Not including the underground aquifers that a lot of places draw off of, or, or that a lot of rural areas are artesian, you know, like, wow. They needed a lot of snakes or one really huge snake even to get enough water out with venom in it. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. I, uh, I definitely have a sort of close, uh, connection to this given that a family member works at the water department i've asked them you know what's the deal with that and they had you know said oh yeah there's fluoride in it and uh, it's to be expected given it's a sort of a bigger city that's definitely one of those give me money cities um but they also put chlorine in the water and i find this kind of interesting given everything that I've learned about how important having a diverse microbiome is. Uh, it seems like there's this overemphasis on sterilization and this really like misnomer that, oh, people in the third world, they die very quickly because they have dirty water and they can't clean their water. And, you know, I feel like this is such a silly modern concept because if you really go with their whole scheme of how the universe is supposedly put together how would we have even made it this far if we needed to boil water just to drink it right so they're they're not thinking straight when they make these suggestions and i think people just go along with it because they never really have the time to look into it deeper but it's it's nonsense this idea that oh you you got to be worried about uh bacteria in your water would you agree do you think there's like a little bit of nuance there i mean i'm sure if you go to a foreign country you have to get acclimated to whatever differences there is in bacteria but if you live in the area your whole life i mean it shouldn't be uh foreign right water shouldn't be needed to be boiled first no, you, you should already have a symbiosis with this bacteria if you're living in that area and being exposed to that water. Um, a thing a lot of people don't realize is, and, and there's been such a huge push with this terrain theory, um, where uh, it, it's really blocked the understanding of the way that we live symbiotically with our environment where we take in a ton of information from our environment. Um, Matt Powers calls it uh, a horizontal DNA transfer where, you know, depending some of these things are bacterias all the way up to, you know, I know a lot of people, again, viruses become a trigger word, but all that is, is, is just a, another DNA information packet and it does things are definitely entering your body. Well, whatever's in your environment, you should already have been making these exchanges with. That's what mm. we're microevolution machines. Right. Macroevolution's nonsense, but microevolution, the human the hu- human beings will adjust to any environment. They'll adjust fast. It's amazing. Um which is just a microevolution and we microevolve by taking that information in. So whatever's around in your water, like uh, for years, um, we actually don't drink uh, 
this water yet because we want to go in and get it tested to find out what's in it only because uh, we just moved to this farm and we didn't even test our water at the other farm but this one because of uh the way the the growing has been happening around here and a lot of these growers because they were coming in and just trying to you know basically uh uh you know whore out the the mountain and not care about the plants not care about the way the mountain is taken care of and things um and because of that there was a lot of chemicals thrown on in that might be in our water tables that we're concerned about but at our last mountain it was just a mountain runoff street and cows went to the bathroom in it ate out of it drank out of it so did we we didn't ever we didn't filter it or do anything to it we didn't uh, boil it uh we just drank straight out of the river uh and uh that was absolutely phenomenal everybody loved our water uh just absolutely delicious smoke snow melt coming off of uh mount lassen just fantastic on top of whatever mountain springs uh and it didn't bother us ever uh like i said i'm we're worried about the man-made chemicals that well, might be in the water here and that's truly the real threat to a lot of these third world countries. It's not the fact that they yeah. have some kind of backward civilization. It's that, oh, these modern companies come in and whore them out and leave them with, you yeah. know, polluted riverways and all that. So it's certainly a topic that leads to a lot of different conspiracies. And it's something that every human being can't avoid i mean we need to get this straight not you and i but just people in general you know with with our water and i mean even jumping in a chlorinated pool is probably not great for you i mean there, there's this whole misconception oh. of 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 water and and it not being like uh, a carrier for things like you look at a, a clear pool of water and you think oh yeah that's safe it's just like any other water but no it's just, it's like the Eskimos have 30 different words for snow like we need to evolve our understanding of water hundred <laughs> percent them chemicals they're they're doing things to you you're soaking them in your skin is your largest organ mm. and and like at one point in time, actually Europeans did not smoke cannabis so much. They did somewhat more like in a sensor, but they used oils and they would just put it on your skin and rub it on your skin. Your skin soaks in so much. It's just absolutely amazing. Um, it, so to go jump into chlorinated water, uh, actually we're uh, in person friends with uh, Joe and Jen from uh from legit bat and uh we went over to their house and their pool because it's got everything in it like sitting in their yard i can smell their pool there's no way i would go in there and let that touch my skin the worst part is is then reading water is also horribly chlorinated to make sure nothing's alive in your water you know because this is what they've done to everything uh, the soil, your water, uh, pasteurized your milk, make sure they kill the life in it. Uh, but you go, I went in and I went to go wash my hands or my face. It was my face. And I put my hands under the water and it went like this and I smelled the water. And I was like, Oh, done with that. You know, just put my hands off, you know, and it's, it, it's not them. It's the Reading, you know, city right. water. Right. Um, just absolutely horrifying and they make sure that there's nothing in there that could possibly be a lot and the thing is is we didn't start seeing so many of these weird diseases 
until we started being commercialized with everything. Mm. Um, you don't get like, uh, even with humans, when we all are in tiny little areas cooped up, you see weird diseases crop up. You see weird mental illnesses crop up where you get out, out in the, where the people are spread out. You don't see the same things like uh, salmonella and chickens that never is coming out of somebody's backyard chickens. That That's never the case. It's when you coop up, you know, 10,000 birds in one small area. And there's a giant mixture of all these different feces and urine and, and, uh, uh, everything's eating in and out of it and everything's exchanging. That's too much. And, and diseases crop up out of that. Uh, like, uh, Matt Powers talks about E. coli with, we don't realize there's more different strains of E. coli than there are humans on the earth. And only a couple of them actually are harmful. And one of the things that people are really going to have a hard time understanding is this is where terrain theory does come in, is that depending on the terrain of your body, as that information is coming in, your body actually symbiotically programs the information. So you took information in and you programmed that information and how your body is going to receive it. Like, you know, Oh, it's nice that you're here. You need to take your shoes off at the door, you know, take, you know, don't drip on the carpet. But when your body is this cesspool now, you know, it comes in, it's an entirely different, uh, uh, environment and it reacts differently to different environment. And the other talk that people don't understand that they don't want to have is a lot of these things are actually just a reparative mechanism. So like when you have uh, your garden, when your pH is out of balance in your garden or you have uh, your nutrient load is really whacked and, and weird, plants will come that want to live in that environment plants will appear that enjoy that environment and then they will use up that nutrient load until the environment comes back to a balance and then all of a sudden the the food that we typically want because we want food from a balanced environment uh that food will just start appearing if your garden is in a good healthy balance you don't even have to weed it weeding it's horrifying those weeds come as a reparative mechanism because most weeds like most weeds only survive in a high ph environment and so then when they come and they live there for a bit it sucks the things out of the minerals that were creating the high ph out of the environment and now it goes back to normal and now the good things can grow there, no problem. So the same thing is applying to your body that a lot of times these things are coming in and because your body's so whacked, your body's like, it doesn't program them correctly and they're trying to set you back to a balance. Um, and that that's where the terrain of the whole deal comes in, yeah. uh, is that now that your terrain's, like I said, a cesspool, it's the straw that broke the camel's back. It's, it's, you know, this thing came in and it didn't react to your system correctly, which we all have like uh poison oak. My system does not like poison oak at all. Um, you know, but I, I, I live here and in, in the first there, the first year for all practical purposes is the 
when I got it the worst. And since then, it just bothers me less and less because my body's, you know, hey, we live in this. It's all right. Um, and then, you know, you do things like eat the animal byproducts who are eaten off of the poison oak and you're incorporating that into your system. Uh, the, the milk, the, the, you know, things like that, eggs, where these things are going out and eating the poison oak and now you're eating it and it's being processed through you and it's come, becoming part of you so it's not offensive. Right. Um, well, and this is, this is the only, a, go ahead. The only exception was one time when we first started using DMSO, which DMSO is this mad, amazing solvent, and it makes it so anything soaks into your body so easily. Oh, I and Christy you told this, me about was this. trying it on. Oh wow, it's so amazing. It's like this it, it's like this super solvent. It, I mean, just wow. And anything that you put in it and then put on your skin, that stuff just screams right into your body. Wow. And uh so Christy made this comfort cream and put it on me with the DMSO and like you know, you could immediately feel the relief and everything else. Well, then I felt so good. I went outside and started uh, uh, working out in the forest. Well, I started just trimming things up, stuff and touching poison oak. Well, that DMSO also makes the poison oak go through and into your system better. So outside of the first time it happened, the D- one time with DMSO, I got into poison oak and that was horrifying. Um, I remember, I think that happened around the last time you were on my show. Cause I remember you telling me that like it almost immediately as our conversation started, but you're bringing up a concept and things that I think are pivotal to re-understanding our relationship with nature. You know, for the longest time we've been given this uh, Darwinistic lie that human beings are the result of a bunch of coincidences in the chaotic nature. And, you know, if you really think about this theory that you just showed us or explained really well, this horizontal DNA exchange, it's evident in any species of animal that you look at, right? Like we have foxes, for example, but foxes isn't just one type of animal. We have a different type of fox for every environment it finds itself in. Birds are probably the best example to look at. I mean, these creatures come from theoretically an original being or an original group of beings and based on their environment they change very quickly and flourish and we even have scientists who have shown groups of animals evolving in the duration of just one lifespan so this isn't something that takes you know hundreds of years of generational changes to be implemented it's something as mystical as uh the heart right and i only say that because this new understanding that you also shared here is mystical to the materialist perspective, but it's actually a lot more natural when we start to see everything working in this electromagnetic paradigm. Uh, And I, I think with terrain versus germ theory, you have that situation where people give you two sides of the coin and there's a third alternative right? They'll give you just enough of terrain theory to be like, oh, okay, you know, they kind of got to let them chew on that bone, but it's not the whole thing. It's a diversion away from the real truth that terrain theory is just one aspect of our uh, very complicated, but simple in one way of looking at it, relationship uh, with nature, right? Because when you see the microcosm, macrocosm approach, 
it becomes simpler. It becomes like, uh, like you have the blueprints and you're just, you're able to identify it, you know? Well, that was absolutely perfect. That was just beautiful. I, 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 you, uh, you got it. You got it. (laughs) I could not agree more. And, And I've been saying that for, for a minute. It's like, and I, I feel the same thing with, uh, uh, particle, uh, theory versus ether theory. Mm. It's like, you know, like, uh, at Flattoberfest, Wits, it was going on and he's, he's representing ether theory. And, uh, so he's going on, everything's potential and I'm going, well, but potential of what, that, what is the second thing, you know, whatever you fill in with that, what, you know, pH potential of hydrogen. Well, hydrogen, this, this basic, structure of hydrogen this is the potential of it like you know the, it has to have that second feature it can't just be potential um now potential can fill into anything it can be anything but then it needs the structure in order to be that so the the structuring is what's missing and that's what you're talking about with the the more uh, particle theory side they're looking at just the structure and not the other side of things Mm. you know because then on the particle side of things they're like you must be able to quantify and weigh this if you cannot quantify and weigh it then it does not exist and and that's you know there's some things that you just can't really quantify and weigh but they're still there Mm. they still that's still part of the system um like i my buddy Lucas, uh, you ever talked to LC King? That name sounds uh, familiar, but no, no, I haven't. Not maybe, maybe in a group podcast, but not uh, individually. No. Yeah, probably on some group one group ones. He does like he does quite a few with chants on Interverse and stuff. Cool. Um, he sent me a video where a guy had a basic glass and copper solenoid or uh, not solenoid <laughs> capacitor, um, and so. He charged it, discharged it, you know, and then recharged it. And after he recharged it, he takes the capacitor apart. Well, then he picks up each individual piece of this capacitor and nothing happens. And he touches them, holds them the whole nine. Well, one of these pieces should have discharged, you know, by logical particle theory, you know, sense. Like, you know, the charge is stored in one of these particular locations, And so it didn't, though. And then when he put all three pieces together again and then took and put a piece of rod across it, it discharged. Now that this thing's back together the way it's supposed to be. Well, where was the charge stored? Well, I can't quantify that. I can't weigh that. I can't measure that. And so that isn't something that fits in their paradigm, which is that's the ether side of things. And so but both exist. And they're working symbiotically together. So when you only subscribe to one, it's so much, if you've ever read the Kabbalion, it's so much like the Kabbalion, like all truths are half truths. Like, and I'm just sitting here like, oh yeah, you got half a story and you got half a story and you're both right, but you're both actually wrong also. And it, it, it's kind of amazing to watch. Absolutely. Yeah. And it does, it feels like, you know, 
the benefit of the doubt argument just cannot apply given how many mistakes towards the anti-human agenda the military and the major powers that be i mean we really can't give them the benefit of the doubt if we look at what we have in our bodies and then we compare that to the materials that are spread throughout our society they're anachronistic towards one another. They're against each other. They're in opposition. I mean, aluminum, uh, barium, strontium, right? All of these kind of weird chemicals that are allegedly being sprayed in our atmosphere and find their way into various household products and that's why I think the your cookware, yeah, that's, well, that, the one, that's the one that really gets me. That everybody's sitting there vaporizing aluminum on their stove, and then they'll even notice after a few years that their aluminum cook pan got thin, and they're like, "Oh, it's gotten thin. This one's old. That got thin because it vaporized into the air, and you breathed it. It vaporized into your food, and you ate it." Right. Right. And that's why this alchemical understanding of our world is so important. I think that's a big reason why they've tried to strip that understanding from science and give people this sort of uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, you know, Island of Moreau type science where it's geared towards uh, an anti-human agenda. You know, I mean, that's the best way to explain it, really, because it's it's really unbelievable that humans would be behind this i don't know personally where you stand on the whole alien anunnaki and all the rest conversation but i think that comes to mind when you want like you look at uh where humans could have been i mean what do you think about our dna now that we're on the point of dna have you heard about this uh concept that we might have had more strands of dna and now that we're down to two strands of dna we're somehow uh less than what we could be oh that 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 very well i wouldn't say that uh we're down to anything. I don't see how that's at all possible, but we definitely could have latent things that aren't active, mm. that just aren't appearing. One of the most fascinating talks that you that uh, you hear with Matt Powers uh, is that uh, he talks about they're called thermophiles. And so when you're looking at hot compost, this thing called a thermophile will literally appear with a little flash and it appears, it does its little job and then disappears. And if you weren't watching under the microscope the whole time, there's no carcass, there's no nothing. This thing never existed. It only existed because they have microscopes now that you can sit and record, you know, the inner, the chemical interactions that are happening for hours and hours. And this little creature just beep, there I am going to do a thing. Bloop, I'm gone. Yeah. You know? Um, and so understanding that there's so many other things like that, that just depending on how conditions are, things change, uh, thing, things have different, uh, jobs have different abilities and it's all set by the conditions that they're in. And we're in some really horrifying conditions. We're, we're in a condition where everything around us is dead and, and sterile. And so our insides are dead and sterile. I have no problem believing that we have uh, uh, things hidden inside of our system that until uh, the uh, 
biome of our world is correct that those things won't express themselves just like I had Wilson's disease in my body the whole time. That was a that was a latent thing that was sitting in there. And only when the conditions were right did it express itself. And I fully believe that, you know, since then, because it's not just the cannabis that I do. Um, I also and, and, and I've, I've I've experimented with it and I don't get as sick as I used to because now I'm when I uh, had Wilson's when I was having seizures, I did eat meat, which is heavy in copper where now my diet is based around that more. And so that thing doesn't express itself, you know, because I don't give it the conditions to let it express itself. Right. Well, there's also going to be good things like that too. Like we're not allowing these things to, to show up because we are constantly living in a poisoned condition. Right. Right. And that's why devices like the aqua cure are I think really important. I know you own one and use one, and uh, I invited you here all, partly to to get your testimonial. Right there. Awesome. Yeah, I haven't set mine up yet, just because I I fear that I'll run out of distilled water and something will go wrong. So I'm going to save up for a distiller. Once I have my own distiller, I'm going to be running the AquaCure. So if anyone's listening, wondering why Mark hasn't had any updates about his AquaCure, uh, I will be uh, getting that distiller hopefully next year. So we'll see what happens with that. But I think this is an appropriate, you know, sort of segue considering what we're talking about with health and, you know, the elements that comprise us, right? Because one of the big facts that George Wiseman taught me, I didn't realize this, is how much hydrogen is all around us inside of us in our foods and this process that we've described throughout this conversation where they've stripped the memory from the landscape they've stripped the microbiome the the land biome of its real uh, nutrients you know that also affects how much hydrogen is available in these foods so having a device like the aquacure is a sort of temporary solution to this, albeit that if we had a the right environment, there'd be no need for an aqua cure, right? This isn't like, you know, we're not reinventing the wheel here, creating something all all new. I mean, this is something that actually we might be reinventing the wheel. The wheel's broken <laughs> and we're reinventing it, right? In a way, but anyways, enough of my ramblings. How has the aqua cure changed your health? Because obviously you described you know, your health challenges and has it helped mitigate some of the issues that cannabis was helping with? Oh, wow. No, actually. Okay. So, so first we'll start out with that. Uh, George and I don't quite see things quite the same way, very similar, but mine's a little bit different, you know, a little nuance, a little different nuance to it. So George, George views the hydrogen in and of itself as basically uh, a food, and, and that's not the way I see it. So hydrogen water, period, is the earth-level mercury, okay? So when, I, when you have a carbon body, as an alchemist, when you do the great work to something, the carbon body is what you uh, remove. So if it's a plant, 
I'm removing all the carbon out of that plant system. I'm removing the cellular material, the cellular material, which is basically cellulose, you know, whatever cellulite. It's 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 the outer wall that allows the things to happen inside it, and that's what burns down into ash and then water. So water's the third thing that always gets taken out, and what you're left with is oil and salt. And then the oil has a, a sulfur life component in it that rides inside the oil. Okay. So now that means that the carbon, the water, and the cellular material belonged to the earth. That belongs to this earth level, this Midgard. And of that, the uh, cellular material is the hard side because that's the crystal side of things. Because when I hit that with, fire then uh the it got hard it didn't vaporize it it sank so the water is what is the uh acting as the mercury on that level and the water is opening up uh things on either side and allowing the transition so when an alchemist says mercury they mean philosophical mercury which is a solvent, and water is the great solvent of this level. Now, inside of water, and this is a this is an entire debate and argument in and of itself that I actually just uh, was on with Beth Martins about, where a lot of people are uh, really trying to, uh, you know, we've been lied to so much about a lot of our science that there's a lot of bad science, alternative science out there too, uh, but. Uh, so when you look at what water's made out of, it's hydrogen and oxygen. Now, inside of that, like when we were talking about the heart earlier, what oxygen is doing is oxygenating things. So oxygen is breaking things apart. When uh, you want to decarbolate cannabis, you can't just walk up to a cannabis plant, pick the bud off and consume it, and it have psychoactive effects because the carbon molecules are attached to the THC molecules, making them stable. And so you need to decarbolate that and get them carbon molecules to break free, allowing the THC to be, become unstable so it can attach to your cannabinoid receptors and use that cannon, cannabinoid receptor to fill the hole. And then we all have a good time. So um, – the oxygen, well, once that carbon's broken out of the system, it needs to get out of your body. And so it attaches to oxygen, the next available thing for it to attach to, and then you expel it out with CO2. And so this is why we're taking in O2, we're breathing out or taking in oxygen and breathing out CO2 all the time because we're attaching carbons inside of our body to that oxygen and using that as a vehicle to transport the carbon out of our body or else we would end up with carbon poisoning because we'd have all this extra carbon that our body has released from stuff but not gotten rid of. So it's like a trash pile of carbon inside your body. And then fortunately plant life on this earth takes and uses that carbon in the air to grow and rips the carbon molecule out and attaches it to inside itself and then releases the oxygen molecule for us to go ahead and make this whole exchange back and forth. It's very beautiful. Um, now, on the flip side, 
uh, now that this oxygen has broken down rather than cannabis, let's say a mineral that you ate, let's say you ate an apple and your body breaks this apple down and gets it down to its crystal mineral structures. Well, now something needs to add that mineral into your system. You can't just take and eat a packet of Kool-Aid. You need something to make this transition to open up that hard salt. And well, you can't eat a packet of Kool-Aid, but most people don't enjoy it. Um, you, I think uh, they call those pixie sticks. <laughs> yeah, pixie sticks. Yeah, yeah. Oh man. Um, always used to be one kid that snorted that shit too, right? You know, and ran around like he was on crack. Yeah, uh, I'm sure somewhere they did that with Kool-Aid. But I get your point. Great metaphor. You you wouldn't yeah. want Kool-Aid without the water to dissolve it. Exactly. So this same thing needs to happen to these crystal, these minerals, these crystal minerals, these salts need to be dissolved, uh, solvent, in order to open them up and so they can transition into your body. Well, when that happens, it's not the water portion of it, like just water, it's the hydrogen portion that's allowing the fusion to happen. So where the where oxygen is the negative side of mercury hydrogen is the plus side of mercury that's allowing the gift so so whenever you look at mercury mercury is always the middle it's not plus or negative it just makes transitions it makes transactions it carries messages you know the message isn't from mercury mercury's the messenger of the gods it's not his message he's bringing it somewhere else and just here this was here now i moved it here um, this is also why Mercury is the crossroads, you know, or the pathway or the, the uh, edges. It's because that transaction can only happen where Mercury exists without the water to open up the salt and open up the electrical side. The things can't transition. So the hydrogen in and of itself is then allowing the fusion of these other minerals in your body. So where now, and I understand where George is coming from, where uh, he, you're seeing people have a lot more energy. You're seeing them have more health because they're a lot, they're uh, able to take in these mineral nutrients. Well, he's looking at it as food, a more direct reaction from my perspective, they're allowing the latent nutrients that you were not able to process that were sitting there like a dry packet of Kool-Aid. Now that the hydrogen is there, them are able to be processed. So in, in what a, in a plant, we call that nutrient lock where you can take and put all the nutrients you want around the plant, but until things come back into balance and until this, the it's hydrated enough then the system won't take it in and it'll just sit there and build up around it. It's like uh, dying of thirst while you're living in a lake. Right. Right. And that's a, a great description of that. I feel like people are literally starving themselves while they have an abundance of food. I mean, this is why we have this health obesity crisis because people are eating basically nutrient deficient food much like you described, you know, people who feed their dogs, you know, uh, really poor nutrient, you know, uh, low 
foods, they end up being these like really, you know, not even animals, more like science experiments, uh, half couch, oh, half dog. Cancer spots all over them. Yeah, yeah. Cancer spots everywhere. You're like, wow. Right, right. And, you know, thankfully people have sort of, at least I've seen, you know, people start to figure that out. And, you know, now they have healthy options for pets and foods that are actually, you know, sort of seem like food. I don't know. They say you can eat it too as a human, but that in theory, I mean, dogs and humans should have a, a similar diet. They've lived alongside of each other long enough. Right. So <laughs> I, uh, I wonder if, if, again, like cannabis kind of showing us the way through these other overlapping things that you wouldn't think there would be a connection to, you know, the animal world can, can show us the same, but yeah, hydrogen, it's certainly one of those things that at first glance, you're like hydrogen, you know, like, what is that? You know, it's not, it's not like something that you would think is, is a necessary part of life because we're not told, I mean, everybody's heard the, the trees, and the you know we breathe out carbon dioxide trees excel uh oxygen right i mean that is one of the few examples of where they show us the symbiotic truth of our world right i mean that one's unavoidable but the truth is with this macrocosm microcosm perspective you could see these things in all areas and what to me is sort of curious is how hydrogen next to maybe the the ignorance of what it does you might also have the idea of hydrogen bombs right this idea that hydrogen is a weapon it's something that's weaponized and i think that is probably for george's case one of the bigger obstacles he has to face is like oh no here's what hydrogen actually is folks but Alchemically speaking, why do you think that is? Do you think the hydrogen bomb is doing something beyond just wreaking havoc and exploding? Do you think it's uh, interacting with 100%. maybe this ether uh, environment that we're describing? A hundred percent. So this, again, goes back to uh, my uh, uh, presentation at Flatoberfest, the biochemical uh, electrical universe. So when you look at a galvanic uh, battery, okay, the way the battery is basically laid out, you have a, a anode, which is your uh, negative, a cathode, which is your positive, and then you're sitting inside of usually two different uh, solutions, and these are your mercurial or electrolytic solutions, okay? And then sometimes it's one, and then there's just like a, a membrane. So on the anode side of things, what happens is the particles break apart. So we're going to say that the, the anode is silver and the cathode is gold. Because in a galvanic reaction, the cathode needs to be more stable than the anode. So what's going to happen is the anode's going to, a particle inside this anode is going to break apart and it's going to oxygenate. Well, the electron of it is going to make a, a, a beeline directly over to the cathode. It's going to go just straight, like no problem. But then the ion side of things is going to release and float off into the mercurial solution. All kinds of philosophical, you know, points to make about that, right? And that's where mercury is going to attach to the ion. And now that the 
electron has went over and merged with the cathode, it's given the cathode a negative charge. So now that the cathode has an extra negative charge, that positive ion's like whoopee and wants to go toward that uh, that negative charge. And so the mercury carries that ion that ion over to the cathode. Now, now that we've been on the anode side of things, over there it's an oxygenation. Now that we've gotten over to the cathode side of things, now it's through the hydrogen that the ion side of things are going to actually merge back with the electron and we're going to get a fusion reaction which is a, a much bigger electrical reaction than the fission reaction which is what we would have called where the two the particle broke apart now the particle is fusing back together and and so it it's a fusion reaction and the power that we get from a fusion reaction is much stronger than a fission reaction and all of that is driven through hydrogen so and it's super interesting cuz even when you watch hydrogen burn like you got your torch uh, your aqua cure came with a torch where the hydrogen as you hit the flame with hydrogen now most flame when you light a part particles on fire they immediately spread out and they 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 make a spread and once they've spread out far enough and lost their energy they die off well with hydrogen and you'll notice this right away it literally cones down into the flame cones down and like drives into a point super super interesting and so it's allowing the transition of these signals uh uh when you're using that torch as a torch uh it will melt metal that hydrogen torch will melt steel and the hydrogen torch is only as hot as a light it's not even actually as hot as a bic lighter if you hold a temperature gun to it you have less flame less temperature than a bic lighter puts out but it will turn it will turn steel into a why is that because the the hydrogen in and of itself is allowing the charge to go through there much easier. It's like slicking the it's like slicking the hole, right? Um, and so then then the electrons just pot the other the ions just pop right in there once that hydrogen's been flooded around the area. Well, that same exact thing's happening inside the battery. That th- same exact thing's happening inside of your body. That hydrogen is allowing the transition of these. Uh, uh, energies, these these uh, uh, electrical forces, the uh, minerals, which, you know, have uh, piezoelectric, you know, when you start breaking apart the mineral, it breaks apart into piezoelectric, uh, you know, straight energy. Well, all that's happening through that hydrogen. That's what's uh, allowing the fusion of these things to come back together. Now, the absolute fascinating thing, and this is just a normal galvanic battery and for whatever reason generations of people haven't put this together but when the an- when the anode breaks apart that silver anode when it comes back together at the gold cathode and it becomes gold so the cathode literally becomes thicker as this galvanic transaction is happening those particles that were silver have now become gold furthermore 
just like any other battery, when you go to recharge the battery, you throw electricity into it. And through the electrolysis process, just like in your AquaCure, it's breaking apart the particles. And now that that gold particle is broken apart, it flows backwards and it'll become the an- the cathode will move to the anode and gold will become silver. And obviously, if we kept pushing that down the line, that's where you descend into the less uh, uh, you know, godlike metals into the mundane metals. And so this is just a transition uh, of, uh, of uh, particles and how they're uh, assorted and what's attached into them. Uh, people have no idea how elements work at all. It's super fascinating. Um, you can change elements and we know this. Like uranium, if you look at the decay chain of uranium, uranium becomes radium, it becomes bismuth, it becomes all kinds of different things. Because the way that uh, uh, radioactive materials work is they don't have enough electrons to hold on to the overload of ions. And so uh, it's just bleeding off ions, just dumping them. And as opposed to electrons, which is what, you know, were the end of things that we're kind of used to working with. And so this thing's just dumping ions. Well, after it dumps enough ions, which is a proton for all practical purposes, it's just a proton. When it dumps enough protons, it actually becomes another element. And so then all of a sudden it's something else. And and it's just according to the proton to electron to neutron ratio. And then further, if you want to take radium, say, and you want to turn it into uranium, you can take thorium and mix it in there. And thorium makes neutrons transfer. And now that it's got more neutrons, the radium's got more neutrons, it can hold more protons. And now that it's holding more protons, it becomes uranium. (laughs) So forgive me if this is uh, silly to suggest, but could we possibly turn nuclear waste into bismuth and maybe you know stop it from poisoning all of us i mean there's all this you know scare and i don't know how much of it's propaganda but there's a lot of fear around nuclear waste and nuclear energy and i think with this kind of information you just shared it shows that maybe these things aren't as permanent as we might have thought and the idea that they're gonna you know be there in the ground for billions of years polluting the earth maybe that's a part of this I mean, deception let, let's look at let's look at for starts i mean even if you go and look at chernobyl uh, chernobyl mm-hmm. which you know there's all kinds of information where there's animal life and plant life and it's very abundant and even if you don't want to believe that let's all remember japan is a tiny island mm. Three of the four world's greatest nuclear disasters have happened on Japan. Uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima, we dropped supposedly nuclear bombs on them. And then just more recently, the nuclear power plant that went to shit, uh, Fukushima. And so this is a very tiny area. And according to the story we're told, they should be in in nuclear winter for like, oh, the next 10,000 years or something. You know, there should be a bunch of Japanese people running around with like six eyes and a split tongue or something, you know. Um, But it didn't happen. Uh, Nagasaki and Fukushima, people were living, going around and doing their thing. 
or or Nagasaki and Hiroshima, they were going around doing their thing the next day. People were going around cleaning it up, you know, going back back about their lives without. And actually, Japan has the least mortality in infant deaths and the least uh, health problems mm. among amongst infant uh, births. So these people aren't suffering some giant ill effect from the three nuclear disasters that have happened in a tiny, tiny area. Right. Um, and so what we need to understand again is that understanding of uh, three components here. We have a plus component, a negative component, and a, a mercurial component, which is neither plus nor negative, but allows the transition of the two things. And so we understand that that system will run until it finds balance. Once the system is balanced and we have all the components have met and met a structure and balanced themselves out, everything just becomes stable and inert. So if we have a problem with too much ionic, you know, too much ion radiation, well, then it needs to have two other components before it's going to find balance. You're going to need some electrolytic solution and you're going to need some electron. And now all of a sudden things are going to go balancing themselves back out. This energy is going to, is going to end up the way it needs to be. Um, it, it's super fascinating. This is a subject that I'm working on right now. And the aqua cure really kicked this off because one of the things that's fascinating that the aqua cure that has going on is, um, that uh, it breaks apart the particles, right? So it's an electron or an electrolysis process. What it's doing is taking that H2O and, and turning it into HHO. So it's just breaking apart the structure of it. And now that it's not in a stable structure, the hydrogens are able to be taken in by you easily because now it's an uh, just a hydrogen instead of a stable H2O. Um, well, through this process, because you're running electricity through these electrodes to make this electro electrolysis process, a sludge ends up developing. Um, and actually, oh, this is so interesting too, because uh, 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 Brother Nature Bear was sending me a video where all these people are think that they're making uh, uh, colloidal silver by sticking two silver uh, electrodes into water and then running a charge into it. And that's not happening at all. Um, so... It, what with this electrolysis machine of George's, it's a uh, more of a steel iron uh, type of sludge develops as you're running this electrolysis process. And so what one would automatically logically assume is, is that as you're running electricity through these uh, that they're breaking apart and you've got some, you know, the uh, electrode should be uh, deteriorating. Well, after three years of collecting up this sludge out of the solution, he took apart the machine and, and checked the electrodes, you know, for deterioration to see how things were going. And the electrodes weighed the exact same as they did when he had originally started. There was zero deterioration in these electrodes. Um, but this sludge... Over the three-year period, he collected 19 pounds of this uh, iron sludge inside of the solution that was just appearing uh, through this electrolysis process. Wow. Right? Wow. So now what, what would 
I mean, I remember George saying that you could just, when you're cleaning your aquacure, you just pour this sludge down the drain and it's fine. But is there a practical use for iron sludge? Is this something that's maybe more of like a waste product inherently? What What's the deal with this? So, so it now this is going to take some experimenting that I that I will be reporting back on in the future, but so here's here's my theory is we are sending an electron an abundance of electrons through these materials, and it's basically programming things, okay? And so, uh, just like with the uh, galvanic battery where the electrolysis process is the opposite of the galvanic process. So with the, with the galvanic battery, when we threw electricity into it and did the electrolysis on the actual cathode itself, um, and these particles split apart, well, the, when it went from gold to silver or silver to gold, that particle was the same particle, Right? Like, like we can recognize that this particle, even though it's two different things on which side it sat, it's still the same particle. One particle was here. Now one particle is here. A gold particle did not appear out of nowhere. A silver particle did not appear out of nowhere. There, there was one particle that turned, that was two different things. Okay. So when, uh, you break the particle apart, the electron side has the stability. The elect the masculine side of things is the structure. Like when we were talking earlier about particle theory, particle theory versus ether theory, ether theory is the potential. And that potential can literally be anything. But the structure is what sets what that potential is gonna be. And so the electron side, the masculine side, the particle side, that sets the structure. Well, now that that ion, which can literally be anything, meets it, um, it, now it becomes an actual particle of something. So when you're running electricity through these, you're drawing in ion side. And I think that that's just a sludge that it's pulling out of the air. It's literally programming particles and making them appear and have if there was the proper salt side of things if we had the proper minerals inside to meet that sludge i believe that that metal material would just appear and we're just getting half of the particle right now and that's just floating in there so when when you're looking at like uh, colloidal silver what they're doing with that uh if you were really making colloidal silver you would basically use the colloidal as a filament so it's going to go the positive over here, the negative over, over here. And as the electricity burns away the particles and they become hotter and faster and smaller, they break off and go into the water and get break away from the hole. Now, this is an entire particle. You know, it's just a very small particle. It's no longer together. What colloidal silver is, is 30 parts per million, very specifically with colloidal. You know, like when people talk about monoatomic, that's one part per million where colloidal is 30 parts per million. So you've just broken this into a smaller bundle of sil of silver, right? That's what we're talking about. Like when they say something is quantum, uh, that word that gets thrown around with for like uh, attached to like everything now, 
all quantum is is the smallest uh, uh, identifiable piece of something. So I can see this particle, and I can see it's got as many protons, electrons, and neutrons as a gold piece should have. And if I break it down anymore, it will no longer be gold. It could be anything because now it's just a couple protons and a couple electrons and neutrons. And depending on how I arrange them, it can literally be anything. So quantum means that it's the smallest piece where you can still tell what it is as something. Okay. So I think that because we're running electrons through that, that's just half the picture. And if we literally would be transmuting things, if we put the right structuring inside the water, inside that electrolytic solution, uh, just like if you actually talk to George, he'll talk about how um, that they'll go into rivers and they will pan them dead from gold. There will be no gold left and there's no mother load above it. And they'll come back a couple of years later and there's gold nuggets everywhere in the river. And, you know, little gold pieces because of the minerals or the salts that's in that river as the sunlight hits it and the two things come together, boom, little gold particles appear. But it's got to happen through the mercurial fluid. Wow. Now, this might be uh, very dangerous information, but is there a way of telling which rivers would uh, <laughs> procure gold like that? Is there a certain thing that a trained eye could spot that would indicate that you might be at a river that uh, breeds gold? <laughs> I, I would definitely uh, start looking at what plant life specifically is around those mm -hmm. rivers because uh, in that situation, then, depending on what minerals are in the soil is going to depend on whether gold ends up appearing in the soil. And they've actually been using this uh, for other things, too. Even something like diamonds. There's certain plants that grow in where diamond clusters are and things like that because the mineral load is correct there. And so if you figure out which plants tend to grow around where gold appears, that's because that mineral's heavy there. You will go. You will end up finding gold where those plants are and water. Right. Yeah. And this is especially interesting considering uh, my interest <laughs> and yours too. We have a shared interest in this. You also uh, wire wrap uh, gemstones, yeah. and you do a fantastic job. I mean, me, I would consider myself more avant-garde compared to the way you do your wraps. Yours are very uh, symmetrical and, and stylized, and I really like them. But on that note, I mean, I'm sure there's uh, a whole system. I'm, I don't know if it's already been written, but of corresponding minerals and plants. And maybe if you are someone like us who likes minerals and goes out and looks for them, you could uh, uh, begin to understand like, okay, garnets, I'll find those when I see this type of tree or amethyst might be in this type of area. And yeah, it's fantastic. I mean, I used to think I could only get crystals at a store and then I really started looking at rocks as I was hiking and I found some really beautiful crystals just kind of uh budding off of the matrix of granite or whatever base stone it is and from what i've learned there's like a whole um native american ceremonial purpose to some of these sites so i'm not going to go along and like chip 
the quartz or whatever off of it just for fear of messing with something. And I, I try to preserve that kind of stuff. But it is definitely interesting to think you could use or to know you could use plants to, to do this. Now, back to the torch. When you're wire wrapping, could you use the torch maybe on the types of materials that you would wire wrap with? I mean, how, how have 100%, you... 100%, and it's so much better. Right. So much better. Two things. The torch is burning hydrogen, so it's not a hydrocarbon. And where, like, you know, like a lot of your, your dirty-ass hydrocarbons, like, they're literally leaving a carbon. And so that carbon's getting pounded into whatever metal you're making hot. So, you know, th this is part of why, like, a lot of jewelers will end up using, you know, this style of torch. Where, and then you fill it with, like, a medical-grade butane where it's super clean and you're not getting, you know, like, uh, you take your propane torch and you run it across a, a sheet of metal. It's just all black, mm. you know. Right. Um, well, as you melt the metal, that gets pounded into the metal. And that's obviously discolors it. You know, you're not getting that back out short of distilling out the, it's short of uh, smelting the metal again. Um, where this hydrogen torch, two things, it's not burning a hydrocarbon, you know, it, it's, it's burning straight hydrogen. And then uh, uh, the other thing that it's doing is it's not carrying over heat. So when you're trying to do something like uh, set a bezel or doing like a little or, or say you want to take and, and, and solder a little piece because you like I, I know one of the bigger things that people are doing because they have a hard time cleaning up the back of their wire wrap. So they'll take like a little silver piece and put, you know, just a little layer of just pure silver on the back. So the front's wire wrapped and the back is just silver and uh you're going to be able to solder much closer to sensitive areas. And the same thing for electronics, uh, you know, a crystal that you normally would not have wanted to expose to heat, you know, under a normal soldering situation because uh, the hydrogen torch um, makes the melting happen at so much of a lesser temperature and it pinpoints it. It's a very small area that it heats up. And so uh, it's not going to it's not going to transfer the heat into things that you don't want to transfer it into near as much. It's really an awesome little tool. Wow. Yeah, I, I love just playing around with the wires and I'm definitely one of those people who has a hard time cleaning them up. But I, I make some pretty funky stuff. And if I had a, a, a torch to use, I probably up my game a little bit. But yeah, I, I have to. Yeah, maybe... I know, no, no. I know if I knew how to use it, which is why I was about to say, maybe we ought to t uh, schedule a time in the future for you to just give me a real breakdown on how to use it. And I, so I won't like uh, light my whole house on fire. Now saying that this torch can't light your whole house on fire, which is one of the cool things about it. I mean, George kind of expressed this to me. He's like, don't worry, this thing's not dangerous, right? And I think the torch, I mean, obviously if I lit something on fire, that would cause a problem, but it's not going to explode. I could use it in my house. Yeah. You know, and this is one of the things that I wanted that I talked about on special. Hand me the, uh, hand me the striker. So you understand that, uh, when something flames up like that, all it's doing is then particles are just getting the hell away from each other. 
And uh, so in order for something to be flammable, it usually the particles have to be pretty, pretty compressed. This right here, this is map gas. You know, uh, this is a super hot, super intense gas. Like, uh, you know, when you need to really heat up like metal, this isn't like you're just uh, uh, doing uh, normal plumbing. This is you really need to heat the area up. So this is this is a strike. See? Now watch this. And that's literal explosive map gas. And it's not until I was getting them sparks like right into the gas that uh, it really wanted to ignite. Mm. So, it, and again, I don't want to make people be cavalier and start acting a fool, but when you're understanding the, the flammability of something, you have to understand the, how condensed it has to be. And hydrogen is super light super light so that just immediately uh where a lot of gases are gonna want to like uh like uh this gas as i'm gassing it off it's literally it's it's airing off for a second and then it's wanting to settle back down and it'll settle back down and so uh, a lot of gases if you just let them sit and run you'll end up where uh, around the a lower level you'll get a coagulation of those gases where they'll pool together hmm. where hydrogen hydrogen so light it automatically just disperses rises up floats away it, it's really hard to get uh, hi enough hydrogen together to make it uh flammable like that and so that even if you sat and let left that torch running for two hours and you came back into that room and lit a cigarette it wouldn't, it, nothing would happen. You know, it's got to be a real heavy condensation. Yeah, that's awesome to know. And I, I would like to dispel people's fears, but yeah, we don't want to encourage people to, you know, play with fire, right? So uh, definitely check out the, the aqua cure and the torch that goes with it. Now on the point of uh, testimonial, as far as health goes, I mean, how has it affected mm -hmm. your health? Just, I. Uh, the, the machine is absolutely amazing, and this has literally become my go-to for any time that something's going on. <clears throat> so myself personally, when Christy and I take – Christy and I are fairly healthy. Um, it didn't give me a whole lot more energy like it does a lot of people, but I feel like my system's in a better position than most people as far as my diet and the way I, the nutrient load I take in and things and, and how, the, how fresh and organic the food is and things like that. So, and then I'm, you know, eat drinking raw cow's milk, things like that. So I don't have the uh, problems that a lot of people do. But one of the things I did notice was I, I, uh, as I started breathing it for a couple of weeks, a, I noticed my hydration came up and that felt great. And I really just felt really good. And I had a clear and I have a just started developing a real clarity. Um, and then my lungs themselves, where I've been smoking for years and years, cannabis and cigarettes, and my lungs themselves, you know, eventually you start getting that dry, hacky uh, cough and whatnot. Um, well, as I use the AquaCure, my lungs for the first couple of weeks started feeling really heavy and thick. And then all of a sudden I start hacking up old stuff 
And what the AquaCure was doing was rehydrating that dry gunk in my lungs. And once it was rehydrated, I was able to cough it back up. And all of a sudden, my my lungs started feeling larger and larger. Like, it it was absolutely amazing. Um, Christie's used it on a number of cuts and burns. And the the first cut that she used it on, it was absolutely amazing to watch. Uh, The cut never developed a scab. Uh, it just knitted back together. It did not, uh, it turned and it didn't turn that hard red. Usually it turns that hard red and then it kind of dies right where the cut is and scabs over and then new skin kind of appears and the whole area is kind of pink. It didn't do that. It just kind of turned a soft pink and came back together and then just disappeared, you know, over and it was, it was very fast. Um, but the most shocking testimonial that I have was not actually us. So we had some puppies and, uh, the, my mama dog, she accidentally got pregnant like back to back. Like she had some puppies and got pregnant immediately. Um, so when she had that second litter of puppies, she was pretty much skeletal. And, uh, so I had to start giving her, I started giving her cow hearts and things like that and liver to build her back up and get her system back in gear. And, uh, I believe that that extra really heavy meat carried through to those puppies. And so this, that was the first aggressive batch of puppies we've ever had where they were, I mean, they were still puppies, still playful and beautiful, but like they had a hard edge to them that we've never had. So there was one that was extra hard. And uh, I would take her out on the road with me because we just couldn't have her around the other puppies. And uh, she ended up getting parvo, and we didn't know it. Well, this was right around the time that we were delivering the puppies. They were ready to go home, ready to go to their homes, and they all had a home. And so Christy left with with about with a, a good chunk of the puppies, and some of them stayed here. We didn't know there was parvo yet. And when they started puking and pooping, we just thought it was, you know, from the road trip. You know, they've never been in a car, you know, winding mountain roads, you know. So we didn't think nothing of it. Well, it turns out they had parvo. Well, um, the ones with Christy, two of them had to go to the vet. Of the two that went to the vet, one of them died. Uh, and the other one ended up making it. it absolutely horrible. Just super sad. Turned out it, it, it was the one that first got the parvo she had it the longest she got the worst we suspect she ate a turd or something at one of the stops where i because she was traveling with me and uh at home here one of the puppies had parvo real bad uh it was brian's puppy and uh brian's dog it shit probably 10 or 15 times that night which basically mimicked the one that died um, and this dog, the next day, this puppy was lethargic. You could see there wasn't a life to her, you know, just like just down. So I ran into town and I got some bone broth, a good, uh, low sodium bro broth. And I took the aqua cure and instead of having the bubbler run into water, I put it right into that bone broth and I, I hydrogenated that bone broth. And then I gave that to the puppies that were here. Within 15 minutes, every one of those puppies, including the one who had almost shit herself to death the night before, 
was up running, playing, having a good time. And that was the last time that any of the puppies here had any problems. And it was really very sad and hard because then my wife's calling from another state and she's at the vet doing everything they can and they don't have an aqua cure there or anything or any type of availability. This is South Dakota. So it's not even like you could get like some cheap variation or something. And these put, you know, this puppy died and everything else. And the puppies here just thrived. just, you know, so it was, you know, fascinating experiment, but sad to live through for us. No. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm sorry to hear that. We, Hope the re- the puppies rest in peace, you know, and uh, yeah, I wonder, that is the one, you know, of the few downsides that the, the AquaCure hydrogenated water or what maybe bone broth acts differently, but it seems like it has a low shelf life in terms of, you know, you need to drink the hydrogenated water within, you know, a couple hours of it coming from yeah. the machine. You don't want to just like store a bunch of it away and hope you'll have it on a rainy day. Cause that's just going to be regular water at that point. Is that how this kind of works? hundred percent how it works. Cause yeah. what you're doing is, is a water molecule in H2O is a stable molecule. An HHO molecule is not. You've made it unstable, and now these hydrogens are just wanting to take off. You know, the oxygen, it, it, it's also going to take off, but it's it's a little heavier. You know, it's heavier. It's not wanting to move as much. Them hydrogens, they want to get moving. They're, they're like, we got to go. And so now that you've destabilized the molecule and broken out it out of its you know basic triangle structure which is a really stable structure uh now uh hho is more like a string and so those hydrogens just want to take off and just leave right right yeah i wonder you know now that these are known about maybe someone who is a dietitian uh or has that sort of knowledge can figure out a way uh, who knows? Maybe because I mean we have carbonated water. The carbonation seems to stay in the water for as long as it's bottled. I mean, I wonder if there's a solution there. But uh, anyways, Ben, it's the pressure that's going to do that. Is uh, so this is a whole, and we've already been on for what, two and a half, a little over two hours. It, 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 so when you're making crystals. People think that crystals are like just like a compound that like heat and pressure made it into something. And it's not at all fucking true. Um, Crystals start out in this slurry of liquid. And that's why you find them all over. And just like uh, read the story of making an amylite sometime where the, the crystal goes and floods back and forth over an area and then fills in a porous structure. Well, if there's no porous structure, as the solution, the solvent of the that the crystal, uh, the mineral solution is in, when the solvent dissolves, separates out and vaporizes off, it leaves the crystal material behind. And, and so then the crystal in and itself starts structuring from there, and it comes out of this slurry of, of like waterish material, um, typically. And like, so one of the ways that when you're actually making crystals then, cause that's, that's uh, its own industry entirely when you're doing something is, is you 
mix oil in with the solvent. And then as the solvent's evaporating off, what you want to do is make that happen really slow. So that way all this uh, crystal material, whatever material you're crystallizing, it doesn't really matter what it is, has time to align and come back together with itself. And then you release out a little bit more solvent. Well, the way you hold that solvent in is through pressure. So you put it in a sealed container and that solvent can't let itself back out if there's too much head pressure above it. It has to have somewhere to go, just like with the carbon, where when you get too much carbon built up, you can't, the car, you know where to go, so you need to get that carbon out. The same applies with when you're vaporizing out a solvent and crystallizing something. So, uh, do you, see, you understand what I'm saying? No, absolutely, and I didn't know that about crystal so i'm glad you told me i i was under the illusion that it was some kind of pressure thing you know i really hadn't thought about it too much but it, a, a lot of people think that and the pressure actually is what stops the crystal growth although it if you control the pressure it allows the alignment to happen better hmm. and so it's that slow pressure release same thing with when you hydrogenate the water right. if you put it in a small container one thing I like to do, where is my uh, Yeti? So I've got a really nice stainless steel Yeti. Oh, I couldn't see it over the light. The light was blinding me. I've got like this wow. stainless steel Yeti, yeah. and these things are uh, supposed to be bear-proof. So a bear <laughs> can smell tuna in a can. So this thing's actually vacuum-sealed inside of here because heat, you know, heat doesn't transfer through a vacuum worth of shit. So nothing else really does either. And this thing seals really well. So once the hydrogen kind of pushes up and fills that whatever gaps in here, now it can't release out of the water anymore, which is why I was telling the whole crystal story. Mm -hmm. And so if you put it in a super hard sealed container and keep it cold, so the colder you keep it, the less those molecules want to move. Hot molecules move fast, cold molecules don't. And so the colder and tighter you can keep it, that is going to allow uh, the hydrogen to stay in the water for a extended duration, although it's still, yeah, and you can freeze it. Uh, but you're still, it's very unstable. It's still going to want to come out, mm. but that will extend it out quite a bit, putting it in a really well-sealed thing and right. keeping it cold. Yeah, and there are some sort of athletic-type drinks. They're like pouches with these little twist tops, and they advertise themselves as hydrogenated water. I don't know if it's exactly the same as what you'd get when you run water, distilled water through your AquaCure, but that's at least how they're marketing it. And that's a good indication, at least, that we're moving in the right direction. I mean, I, I think Whole Foods gets a bad rap because it's owned by Amazon, we try to go to the small business type uh, natural food store as much as we can, but uh, they are putting those kind of products there. And it, again, makes you wonder, once they get their hands on it, like cannabis, does it become this Franken crop, right? Because as you described earlier with this, uh, what is it, grow more turquoise sort of uh, nutrient, anti-nutrient rather that they give these plants, when I smoked weed from the Massachusetts dispensaries, it was billed to me as, oh, 25% THC, thunder, F yourself, sativa, or whatever, you know, this really cool strain. And I smoke it, 
And I'm like, is there something wrong with me? Can I not get high anymore? Like uh-huh. I'm questioning my whole existence. And it turns out that this thing just wasn't cured, grown, or treated right from the ground up. These plants are just Franken crops. And it's really sad to see that plant fall victim to that. But on that note, I think cannabis is one of those double-edged swords where because of the love that so many people like you and I have for cannabis, we're not going to let it fall victim to that sort of treatment. And hopefully it bleeds over into other areas and, you know, makes a, a larger impact. But Benjamin Balderson, you're a expert on so many different areas. It's a pleasure to have you here, brother. Obviously people can follow you through your channel, Odin's Alchemy on YouTube. You also publish to the podcast platforms, whatever podcast platform people are listening to this on. Is there anything else you want to promote or let people know about before we go? Obviously you have some really cool wire wraps that you make. Those are available on your site. Anything else? Yeah, we actually, uh, Christy and I have just put a concerted effort into, uh, because Flattoberfest wiped us out. So I just got actually a huge pot so I can make a lot more of my gut bomb because that sells out literally within 24 hours every time I make it. It's So I had to up my game. And Christy got her uh, comfort creams. She started making, and this is all on uh, heathenwizards.com. She got a vapor suit that she's been making that is just phenomenal. Uh, my daughter, who's really not into this kind of thing, she used it, and she's usually kind of, you know, kind of poopy on us about that kind of stuff. You Skeptical. Know, like, <laughs> and uh, she absolutely loves the the vapor of the kids. She said her kids, all the other kids are sick for a week around her, and her kids are only sick for a day, and she smeared them with it. Um Jeez. So that's heathenwizards.com. But yeah, we're, we're trying to, uh, and we'll be updating the site. I don't think we've updated it since, uh, uh, Flattoberfest. And then again, we're, uh, working on Flattoberfest for next year already. It's going to be over in the West coast. We're looking at like Sacramento or Reno, um, some, something like that where the, all the West coast people can easily access it. Uh, haven't really had any kind of, uh, things over here, uh, ever really i don't know why the west coast is not um so we're going to change that uh hoping to see a lot of people there uh that's going to be absolutely fantastic and yeah and also come over to rockfin right. uh where um, they allow us quite a bit more free speech than the other platforms do so that is where i put a lot of you know there's things that you're only going to find the first hour of on all the other platforms but i have all of it on Rockfin because they don't, uh, they've never harassed me about anything. So, but thanks for having me on Mark. We, we love you guys. And, uh, my wife and, uh, and Brian, I think it's shocking how often I come in from doing my duties and those two are listening to you. Uh, cause you know, I can always pick out your voice and it's like, so yeah, it's, uh, they, they love, we, we love you here, brother. Oh man. Well, my best to Brian and Mrs. Balderson. Thank you both for supporting this show and listening. You told me that earlier and I wanted to make sure we gave them a shout out. So shout out to them. I hope the podcast helps you get through your farm work, uh, and all the other stuff that, uh, Mr. Balderson probably puts you through uh, <laughs> being on the farm here. But, uh, brother, this has been another great conversation. I hope to have you back on sooner than later. Obviously, this video is on Rockfin. So if you're watching on Rockfin, go over to Odin's Alchemy. Subscribe there. If you're not on Rockfin yet... 
go over for the price of one, you get both of our great channels. Uh, and you get to see our pretty faces while we're talking, and you get to see all the cool tricks that Ben showed me, uh, from the torch to his flat earth uh, globe sort of uh, model. I don't want to use either of those words because it was really a, a mixture of both, but you get what I'm saying. You're, yep. you're a very visual <laughs> demonstrator. You you bring a lot of uh, different elements to these podcast. So I appreciate you, brother. And uh, for everyone listening, I appreciate you as well. And uh, have a great moment wherever you are in the now. All right. Thank you for tuning into this episode with Benjamin Balderson returning for his third appearance. Just want to shout out the HitKit, HitKit.us, the number one way to get lit for all you cannabis smokers who tuned into this episode. Uh, check out the HitKit. It's a great addition to your uh, smoking repertoire, your, your, your smoking uh, paraphernalia. You have two compartments that slide open you can hold a joint a blunt whatever you want in there and there's a very neat compartment for a lighter and some lighters some of the hit kits even have a lighter built into them so go and check out the hit kit hitkit.us or go on instagram and check out the hit kit Um, as for this show we only have that sponsor that's our sponsor folks occasionally we'll get other sponsors from time to time but this show really relies on you the listeners who find value in the value i bring to you each week sometimes two times or more always two times but definitely sometimes more than that and lately it's been three episodes a week and if you get value out of that if i help you get through your work day or Uh, put a smile on your face, send some value back my way so I can keep at this podcast. It it does not pay for itself, and I hope one day it could, uh, and that could only happen with the help of listeners like you. We have a Patreon. We have a Rockfin. We also take one-time donations via PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, basically all the places. I also have some crypto. I'll, I'll accept any form of crypto if you just send me a message first. Uh, or maybe just go to the website. It's all there on our website. Figure out a way to support the show. And there's a new way to support me and the F- My Family Thinks Some Crazy podcast. You go to our Substack. The link is in the description. I'll be writing articles and posting them on Substack. Uh, the latest article will be for subscribers only. And then depending on the article's content, I will release... Uh, the old article as soon as i write a new one so subscribers you'll get the most recent stuff and if you want it as soon as it comes out subscribe Uh, that's the best way to stay in touch and i'm gonna try to keep these things uh, as educational informative as i can maybe a little opinion mixed in but uh it's gonna be somewhat like a research blog maybe even something that you can send to 
other podcasters if you'd like me to collaborate with them. Say, hey, I don't know if you've heard of this guy. He's got this research. Maybe you should have him on your show. And then next thing you know, I'm on your other favorite podcast as a guest. So uh, don't hesitate to do stuff like that. I don't mind. You could always send somebody uh, my website and say, oh, you you should reach out to this guy. That's always encouraged. I just had a conversation with John Kleizek, author of School World Order, and he reached out to me after listening to an episode. So uh, very happy to be at a place now where people are reaching out. Um, John is a great guy. I've really enjoyed talking to him. I think we're going to do a couple episodes together. And uh, yeah, a lot of stuff in the works over here. New episode of Esoteric America just came out. Uh, We got a new one that's coming out this week. And of course, the Patreon show, Synchro Wisdom Dialogue. We just put out a new episode as well as the Grimerica Outlawed. I was on Grimerica Outlawed recently, and the whole episode is available for subscribers on Patreon. So go and do that and support the show. I can't do it without your help. Shout out to all the kind people who sent me a donation, one-time donation, after they heard about my car troubles. Uh, I was able to fix the window, and uh, now the car is back in working order with all of its windows. So thanks for everybody who could uh, help out. I wasn't able to, you know, totally crowdfund it and cover my costs, but that's fine. You know, I'm a man. I got to pay for my own uh, mistakes, got to pay for things that uh, happen, whether accidental or by my own fault. So I really appreciate anybody who heard the message. I explained more details of what happened in the telegram. So if you're curious, go over to the telegram. Uh, And that's about it for today's episode, folks. Benjamin Balderson, you know where to find him. Odin's Alchemy, uh, heathenwizards.com. All those links are in the description. And uh, thank you for being here. Thank you for tuning in. Immerse yourself in the moment, wherever you are in the now. MFTIC. Yeah. Broadcasting the moon matrix from the lunar surface. They want you confused, like you never knew your purpose. Hopping through the portals, dismantling the machine. My family thinks I'm crazy, I can't believe what I've seen. Memories of a war, the Pleiadians and Anunnaki stuck within the genes of a copy of a human body. DNA fractal, the universe within me. Epiphanies of science is hoarded by the Illuminati. Puppet masters know the power of the mantra. Repeating mad lies till it has an effect on ya. Subliminal messages hijacking. Perception tricking the population with holographic projections. We see through it. The system is unraveling. I'm astral traveling through the library of the Vatican on a sacred journey. I embark with the squad, forever spitting truth like Mark on the pod. Gotta know the facts, never hold back. Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap. I dissect the fabric of reality, looking for the answers. Searching through the galaxy, you might be feeling stressed out. Depression, anxiety is no measure of health to be well adjusted to a sick society. You don't even know how powerful you are. 
we the ones who gonna expose the whole facade. I awoke in a deep underground military base. Zero recollection of how I got to this place. Alien corpses floating in glass cylinders. Must have been extracted when they crashed into us. Animal hybrids contained in the cages. A lion with the eagle head. Monkeys with reptilian bases. Losing my mind and I'm feeling desperate. I look around the room and I see no sign of an exit. All of a sudden the wall flickers away. Revealing a hangar full of spacecraft. My getaway. I run to the nearest one. See a guard knock him out. Robin Fulber's plasma gun. Hop in the ship. Take the controls. They highly intuitive. I figure it out easily. Lift off. Accelerate through a tunnel until I see the light. Fly into the sky. Get flamed. By six F-35 Got never hold back Cause I ain't getting caught up in the soul trap I dissect the fabric of reality Looking for the answers Searching through the galaxy You might be feeling stressed out Depression, anxiety is no measure of health To be well adjusted to a sick society You don't even know how powerful you are We the ones who gonna expose the whole facade